Welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Easter Sunday is coming and we hope you'll celebrate at Brookwood at one of our three services. This Saturday, April the 8th at 5 p.m. And then Sunday, our normal service times on April the 9th, 9 and 11. The online campus will stream Easter Sunday at 11 o'clock. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Perry Duggar will address this question. Who caused Jesus' crucifixion? You'll see that many people played this role, including you and me. Also, near the end of this episode, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. You can prepare now by gathering elements representing Christ's body and blood. Here's Senior Pastor Perry Duggar. Has the cross kept its power for you? That's the question. We begin today just a a brief two-week series of Easter messages that I'm calling Examining Easter. Of course, you know that today is Palm Sunday. Message title for today is a question. Who caused Christ's crucifixion? The theme verse, you can take out your outline on the program. Theme verse there at the top from Mark 15. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. Palm Sunday reminds us of another Sunday about 2,000 years ago when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey as the people cheered and they waved palm branches. They laid them on the path as the donkey walked up at the beginning of Passover week. And they praised God. They shouted, Hallelujah. Blessed in the name of the Lord. Behold, the son of David has come. Because they were praising God for sending whom? The Messiah. When they say the son of David, they're talking about the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. Now their hope for him, their plan for him was that he would be a military leader who would drive the Romans from their land. Didn't turn out that way. But they were eager. They were expectant for this Messiah to come. And so we, we call this event the triumphal entry of Christ. But very soon, this triumph would turn to tragedy as Jesus would be arrested falsely accused, wrongly convicted, sentenced to death. How did it happen? Who was responsible for the cruel death of Jesus? We'll look at several possibilities, several people who had a role. But why did Jesus die? Did he die first because of a greedy disciple? Who might that disciple be? What was his name? From what town? Well, Iscariot. He was really from Kerioth, but Iscariot meant he was from the town of Kerioth. And so Judas Iscariot is identified in the New Testament in a number of places as the betrayer of Jesus, as a traitor. And this betrayal was predicted in the Psalms, Psalms 41, also in Psalm 55. Surprising though, isn't it? Because Judas had been one of only 12 men 
handpicked, chosen by Jesus personally, and he'd been with him for the past three years. He heard Jesus teach. He saw him heal. He witnessed miracles. He enjoyed his friendship. So why did he turn traitor? Some writers believe that Judas wanted to force Jesus into taking action. That, that they wanted Jesus to, in the threat of arrest, they wanted Jesus to initiate a conflict, an armed conflict, really, with the Romans so that they could be driven out of Judea. The Gospels also reveal that Satan entered Judas and certainly influenced him. But Judas had to choose to submit to Satan's direction, Luke 22, John 13. Now, both suggestions are involved in Judas's motivation, but I don't think neither, I think neither of them was his primary reason for betrayal. So let's consider an incident that occurred just the day before Jesus' triumphal entry. John 12. We have a lot of verses, so I'm going to refer to the board rather than try to take you through all of them in the Scripture. Then Mary, this is not the mother of Jesus. This is Mary, the sister of whom? Martha and Lazarus. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume... I've shortened these verses, but it's the essence of nard. And she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The aroma filled the house. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Judas was greedy. His love of money allowed him to steal from these, I expect, few precious resources that were entrusted to him that were used to feed and support the disciples as they traveled around, but also as they helped other people in need. It's interesting how someone can justify theft, isn't it? All it really takes is to think only of self first, maybe exclusively. And then other considerations don't enter the picture. We see his avarice evidenced again at Matthew 26, verse 14. Look here. Then Judas Iscariot went to the leading priest and asked, How much? I think that's key. How much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him... 30 pieces of silver, price for a servant, a slave. From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. You see, they needed Judas 
Because they, they needed someone who knew Jesus who could single him out when it came time for rest. No media in those days. No one's picture. We know everybody's picture. We know their measurements. We know how much they weigh, how tall they are. We know what they look like, whether they've dyed their hair, what their new hairdo is. People didn't know Jesus. A few had seen him, but they couldn't have recognized him, wouldn't have identified him for arrest. So they needed this man Judas to single Jesus out at a vulnerable moment when he was exposed. And that moment was when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying with two others. Who were those two? John was one. Peter the other. So these three were there praying. And then Matthew 26, 47 tells us this. Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They were sent there by the chief priests and the elders of the people. The traitor Judas had given them a prearranged signal, surprising signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. Imagine that. The betrayal is intensified, isn't it? Why not just point? Why not just say it's that one wearing that brown robe? And Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. You see, Judas was willing to betray Jesus, apparently, for money. I wonder whether we are. I wonder where we, whether we are willing to earn income dishonestly, which is Another form of betrayal, isn't it, for, to the standards Jesus has given us for the way we should treat each other, the way we should operate. Have we taken something that we really knew was rightfully something that should go to another person, something that another was entitled to, and yet we had the opportunity to take it for ourselves? You know, the tax man is coming in a couple of weeks. Anybody like him? So do we decide, well, we don't much like the tax man. We don't like what he spends the money for, so I think I will shave my earnings. And yet when we lie, when we cheat, we're actually violating God, not necessarily the IRS. When we underreport what we've earned, we sort of forget, don't we, that it's God who gave us all that we have anyway, and that's another way that we probably steal is we don't give anything to God, or very little anyway, and certainly only after we've had everything we can possibly want for ourselves. Colossians 3.5 says an interesting thing. It, it says that a greedy person 
is an idolater. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? Worshiping the things of this world. How many of us worship what this world offers us? Are we so desperate to get a piece of what the world offers, whether it be pleasure or, or power or, or popularity, and we think the only access we have there is through money, so we have to do whatever we can to get our hands around this money. And we end up taking what should be a tool to feed our families, to care for people we care for, and we worship it. And it becomes the focus of our attention, the object of our energy, and our greatest efforts when it's not really worth much. Someone told me money's not worth much. Years ago, a wealthy man, he said, you, you can't buy a good friend you can't even buy a good day. It's worth a weather. It really buys, it can't buy you peace or happiness or joy. He said it's really not worth very much at all. So why would we worship such a worthless thing? Did Jesus die, if not for a greedy disciple alone, did he die because of an envious religious leadership? See, these religious leaders of Israel, the, the, the priests, they rotated high priests, and the lawyers. They were lawyers, but they were lawyers who, who taught people the law of God. That was the law that ruled over the land. And when you think about Jesus arriving, how should these religious leaders have reacted? What did you say? Should have been happy. Why? Because this was the man, potentially, that they'd been waiting all their lives for. These teachers of the law, these high priests, everything they did looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, the full fulfillment of God's promise to his people. They were all eagerly awaiting the coming of the son of David. Or they should have been. They should have been eager to discover if this man who people were watching and they said, you won't believe it, he's, he's raised the dead. He's, he's healed people who've been sick for years. The blind can see. The lame can walk. The deaf can hear. Don't you think they would have hurried to figure out whether this was the man they'd been waiting on? assuming they really cared. John 5, 16. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. He had healed on this instant, in this instance. 
So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his Father, thereby making himself equal with God. They're trying hard to find a reason to get rid of him, aren't they? Because look at that. Okay, they're, they're, they're mad because he broke the Sabbath. But what he did is he healed someone who had been sick for a long time and no one could help them. But see, these men, they cared more about their interpretation of the law. They were the experts on the law. Well, what that meant was that they told everyone what was right and what was wrong, what they could do, what they couldn't do. And they broke the law. I mean, there, there's not that many commandments. I mean, how many commandments? Ten, and there's other laws included um, in Exodus and repeated in Deuteronomy. But there weren't that many, but, but they examined every one. And so this one about the Sabbath, they, they talked about, okay, what is work? What's the definition of work? When I was in Israel, we've been to Israel twice, and something interesting, they, they still follow the, the Sabbath laws. And one way that you see it expressed is in the, the hotels. They have elevators, and one elevator, there's one elevator that you don't push any buttons for. Because to push a button would be considered work on the Sabbath. So this elevator is the only one that works on the Sabbath, and it stops on every floor. Because to push a button would be work. You say, well, that's ridiculous. But that's what faith was distilled down to be in, and it gave these people great power. Because, see, you had to consult them. Kim, you're going to do something. You're thinking, I might make a mess. I better go see the official and ask you, can I do this? You weren't allowed on the Sabbath to tie a rope to a bucket and drop it into a well because to tie the knot was work. But what they figured out, if you had a headdress like a bonnet and you had, you know, the, the uh, what do you call them, the, the, like the straps, you know, if you could take your headdress, your bonnet, essentially, and you could tie the bucket on the rope with the bonnet strings, that wasn't work. I'm not making this up. And so they said, not only did he work, did he heal someone, did he do something that was wrong on the Sabbath, but he, he called God his father which made him say he was the same as God, which he didn't say he was the same as God at all. But it's interesting, if you look in the Scripture, David called God his father, so did Solomon, so did Isaiah, so did Malachi, so did Jeremiah. It wasn't unheard of that men that loved God, and women as well, they're just not written down there, referred to God as their father. These men were looking for something. And they were making anything he did 
extreme, awful, terrible. These were the experts. They had the final word. Everybody looked to them. Can you imagine being the expert on God? And then this guy, Jesus, shows up. He has no education. He's from the worst part of the country up in Nazareth. He's of a lower class. He's uneducated. And he's talking like he knows God in the Scriptures. And he talks about God like he knows him. Boy, it made him mad. And he's gaining popularity. Look at John 11. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. That's the Sanhedrin, highest court in the land. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. In other words, we can't explain this. If we allow him to go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both the temple and our nation, which isn't likely true and is, certainly isn't proven. But they had to say something extreme. Have you noticed that? In the culture we live in, have you noticed it's hard to have any reasonable discussion? Someone makes every statement extreme and exploitive and explosive. So everything has to be argued in some, some way that evokes passion and inflammation. And, and so you can't dialogue. So it wasn't enough to say, here's a guy who's healing people. Why don't we figure out who he is? Uh-uh, no. We've got to stop this guy because people are going to start going to him instead of us. Furthermore, the Romans are going to get on it and they're going to destroy the whole city. Sounds like arguments today, doesn't it? I don't think it was true. I think that was their justification for doing something extreme. And then Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said, it's better that one man should die for the people, for the people, than for the whole nation to be destroyed. And yet there's no threat of the nation being destroyed because of this one guy healing people and teaching but they had to expand it. But it fulfilled prophecy. What Caiaphas said fulfilled the prophecy. Back in, uh, it, was, it was predicted hundreds of years ago, back in the Psalms. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death because he's healing people and people are following him. See, their true motiv motivation for murdering Jesus is seen in Matthew 27, 18. This is in parentheses. He is Pilate. Pilate knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. I mean, think about it. The people were following him. They were listening to his teaching. They were seeking his opinion about religious matters rather than theirs. They were enraged with envy. They were blinded with jealousy. 
Now, I know nobody in this gathering ever has been like that, but some folks in the other service, they may have had a taste of envy, jealousy. You ever known anybody that found their, themselves like that? The behavior's the same, isn't it? They justify outrageous treatment of the people they're envious and jealous of. They create all kinds of accusations, anything to tear them down. Why? Because it makes me feel less. So he has to be removed. She has to go. That's what was going on. So they had him arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They had him tried before the Jewish ruling council. And the Sanhedrin condemned him to death for blasphemy, for dishonoring God. And there's not a shred of it to be found in anything he ever said. I wonder if any of us have ever wanted Jesus' authority removed from our lives. I mean, he sort of butts in. You're running your own life. You're making your decisions. You're deciding what's right, what's wrong, what's moral, what's immoral. What you can have, what you can't have. You decide. Well, Jesus steps in and suddenly he says, no, I decide. And you obey. Do we resent him when he, because he, he, he wants us to live in the way that he says. And we want to live the way we want. We don't like his word pointing out where we're wrong in our personal lives, whether it be spiritually or morally. I mean, don't you see this battle brewing in our culture? Because, folks, Christians are standing for God's opinion on morality, on marriage, on gender. And we're standing. But we're not going to be left alone. We're not going to be left alone. Because our mere existence and holding these convictions must be stamped out. You think if you just are peaceable toward people, that's enough. I don't think it will be going forward. Maybe in South Carolina for a while yet. Because there are many believers here. Because Israel was ruled by Rome, you see, the Sanhedrin could not carry out a death sentence. They had to get permission, and they, they, really, they really needed Pilate, the Roman governor, to carry out the punishment. So that's who we see next. And we ask the question again, did Jesus die because of an insecure authority? Pontius Pilate was appointed governor of Judea by the Roman emperor Tiberius. He disrespected the Jewish Religion. He despised the people he ruled over. He even stole money from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct. He was deeply resented for his tactics. He was despised by the Jews just for being a Gentile without all this mistreatment. He was ruthless 
in maintaining law and order. He used violence, even murder, to suppress any threat of an uprising or a riot. But his brutality displeased the emperor. Violence can only go so far in controlling. And then it causes it to erupt. And Pilate was ambitious, but he was very insecure of the displeasure that would come out of Rome. So he, he, he was anxious. He feared that another bad report would reach the Roman ruler about him. He'd already been in trouble. And so the Jews approached him saying things like, Jesus is creating unrest. Jesus is opposing tax payments to Caesar. None of that's true. Jesus claims to be a king, and Jesus never claimed it. Others claimed it about him. But when Pilate examined Jesus, he, he found nothing wrong with him. Look at Luke 23, 5. Then the Jews became insistent. But Jesus is causing riots by teaching by his teaching wherever he goes, all over Judea, from Galilee to Jerusalem. Galilee's in the north, Jerusalem is in the south central part of the country. So see, that would be a very disturbing comment to a man who's charged with keeping peace and order, wouldn't it? They're trying to manipulate him. They're not talking about this guy claims he's the authority on God or the authority on the scripture. Not at all. They're taking the complaints they think this Roman will hear. John 19. Then Pilate tried to release him. But the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. See the threat? Matthew 27. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. He wasn't. The responsibility is yours. And the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. Surprising how angry envy can become, isn't it? But see, what you see here is that Pilate lacked the courage. He lacked the conviction to do what he knew was right. In fact, if you look in Matthew 27 further, his wife came to him and she said, leave this innocent man alone. I've had terrible dreams all night over this man. So at verse 26, so Pilate released Barabbas to them, which is interesting. Barabbas was a murderer and he was an insurrectionist. He was worse than what they accused Jesus of. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tip whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. See, Pilate's fear of Caesar, his concern about what these Jewish leaders would report to Caesar about him, 
and how they might react in the city if he turned Jesus loose. Calls him to order a man he knew was innocent to be put to death. Sometimes insecurity or fear causes us to abandon our convictions about Christ, doesn't it? I mean, we don't want to lose a friend. We don't want to lose out on a romantic relationship. I mean, goodness, we haven't had one in a while. So, so we compromise our convictions. We know what we believe is true. We know what is really right. But we can't let go. And we want to keep this going. So we do what we have to do to make peace, to continue and we engage in behavior we know is wrong. So was it the greedy disciple? Was it the envious religious leaders? Was it the insecure Roman authority? Or was it someone else? Did Jesus die because just an ordinary person? Jesus gathered with all of his ordinary disciples. Remember, they were fishermen. One was a tax collector, so he would have had money, but of course he was a thief. But these were just ordinary workmen, mostly. And so he gathered on Thursday evening of Passover week for the Passover meal. They had it in the upper room, Mark 14, Luke 22, and they were celebrating this meal. It was the Passover meal. It was referred to as the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples is what we refer to as the Lord's Supper. We symbolize it. Matthew 26, verse 23. And Jesus is speaking to them and he says, One of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him, that passage continues, says it would have been better to have never been born. Jesus identified Judas as the betrayer, and he left. Jesus said, what you're going to do, do it now in one gospel. But the, the, other, the other disciples were confused about what had happened in the gospel of John, and they thought, well, he has the money. He's going to pay the, the grocery bill. So they didn't understand it was exposure. And so they continued as they completed this last supper at what we symbolize as the Lord's Supper. Take out your bags, open them up. I'll be reading from Matthew 26. And beginning at verse 26 is where I am, page 979 in this book, this Bible available here at Brookwood. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples. So probably a loaf, they called this a loaf, much like this, and he would have broken it, probably a number of loaves, and passed out pieces of it to them and 
It symbolized the body of Jesus. And he said, take and eat this, for this is my body. And the, the breaking of the bread symbolized the way his body would be torn and broken that very night. Beaten with a whip, but it was a whip that had metal bits embedded in the ends of the leather straps, had numerous leather straps. And each time a lash would strike Jesus back and then be pulled away, it would have dug into his flesh and it would rip it. It would rip it each time. That's why 40 minus one lash, 40 was supposed to be fatal. So 39 lashes was supposed to be all a person could take short of death. Had the thorns pressed in his brow, was later stabbed after his death. His body was abused. And then open your cups. Then he took a cup. This was the, there were four cups. This was the third cup. It was the cup of redemption at the meal. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you should drink from it. They drank from a common cup. For this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. See, he had, there was a, a covenant between God and his people that was about obeying the law, keeping all the rules, but nobody could. So the only way people could be forgiven, could be right with God, could be righteous, was if there was a go-between, had to, to fill in the gaps where everyone fell short. Because all of these disciples and all of us fall short in so many ways. And so Jesus filled in that shortfall because he never sinned. And so this cup created a new covenant, which is that it wasn't their obedience of the law anymore. It was their belief that Jesus satisfied all of the law for them in their place. And then they could be seen as righteous. And so this blood represented by the wine was poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many, including us. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. And usually we stop there, but I'm continuing. Verse 31, on the way Jesus told them, tonight all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee to meet you there. In Jerusalem, Jerusalem is up on a hill, this this house, they believe they've identified 
the house or a similar house with an upper room. But there's a valley outside the city of Jerusalem, and there's a stream. And then you go up to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. So you can imagine these men, they walked out of this room. They walked down the hill. They crossed the stream, not a very deep stream today, probably not very deep then. And they're walking ahead. But Jesus was walking toward arrest and torture and death. And he was walking with a group of men whose sins would require his arrest and torture and death. And he was walking with a group of men who would all run away when he was arrested just a short while ahead. When he was in his greatest distress, they're all looking for cover. And he knew it. And yet he walked into his death willingly. And he told them that it's interesting, and I think I would have scolded. What about you? I don't know. That's my weakness. I think I would have scolded a little bit and said what I was going to do for them. Nothing. He just said, you'll all run away. But I'm going to rise again, and I'll meet you in Galilee. He's telling the people who would cause him to be put to death that he'll see them a few days after the horror, the agony, the pain, not only the physical pain, but the, the moral, spiritual pain of experiencing their sins. Jesus died so we could live. He shed his blood to save, to, to forgive us. It only happens by faith, and that just means that we truly believe. And I know almost all of us, anybody here, would believe that happened. But there's, there's something that happens in belief, and I've told you that the Greek word belief also means trust, rely, depend on. And so belief in the death of Christ is, is so massive within us, it transforms who we are. It's only possible by the Holy Spirit coming within us and regenerating us so that we receive it. 1 Peter 2, 24 says this. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin. You know, we don't have to sin. And we can live for what is right. And not by your behavior, not even by your belief, but first by his wounds, you're healed. And then we believe those wounds are enough for us to be healed. Why would he die? 
for these disciples, for us, for ordinary people who sin. I think we're about to see who really was at the heart of the crucifixion of Christ. And why did it happen? Look at 1 John. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. As the scripture says, someone might die for a good man, a good woman, but for sinners, only by love. Have you benefited from the love of God? Have your sins been forgiven by faith? Has that change taken place where you need not sin anymore? You can do what's right and follow Christ. There'll be volunteers here at the front to talk with you, to pray with you, to anoint you with oil for healing. They'll meet with you as long as you need. Today's a good day to remember the cross and may by faith that cross the benefit of the cross be applied to you. Remember our Easter services. There's one at five on Saturday. There's two, the normal times on Sunday. So come, but bring someone with you. Bring someone that needs to know. Maybe someone that wants to know, but better, someone that needs to know that Jesus died for that person. And forgiveness is only comes by faith. Father, we thank you that you did what was necessary. Lord, many, many people were involved and all of us have a role. Each one of us alone would have caused the crucifixion. And because of your love for us, while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. We hope you'll celebrate Easter Sunday with your family at Brookwood. There are three services this weekend, Saturday, April the 8th at 5, and Sunday, April 9th at 9 or 11 o'clock. The online campus will stream Easter Sunday at 11 a.m. Consider watching the movie The Passion of the Christ by yourself or gather with a group this week. Find a quiet space and then read Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 47. Reflect on Jesus' death and his unfailing love for you. At Brookwood, we want to help you pursue a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience a transformed life in Christ. One way you can do this is by getting connected at Brookwood. You can email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call 864-688-8326 to speak to someone on our connections team. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast. If you like what you hear, leave a review so that others can discover how they can have a transformed life in Christ. Thanks for listening and have a great week.